Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Little uh, little Mama Kardashian, you know, has she done anything to be famous or is it just her children are <laughs> famous? <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Newest Olympian. My name is Mike Schuber. I'm the titular Newest Olympian. I am a 31-year-old man who never read the Percy Jackson books as a kid, but I'm reading them now as an adult because I'm on a quest to determine if this is a book series that we've all been sleeping on as a society. But I'm not on this quest alone, though. I am joined for a very special episode by a very special guest. It's Red from Overly Sarcastic Productions to talk all things myths in book four. Red, how's it going? Hello. I'm happy to be here one more time. This book series series holds a special place in my heart for two different reasons. One, because I read them when they came out and thought they were extremely cool. And two, because I smack talked to them very briefly in a video I made years ago and haven't heard the end of it since. Yeah. And I believe you discussed this last time, but that was more Heroes of Olympus, right? Yeah. 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 My love for the Percy Jackson books is uh, deep rooted and uh, has not yet been shaken by the ravages of time or me no longer being actually (laughs) Percy's age. But I just love the first person perspective. Percy is such a fun character to be in the head of. Uh, and the one thing I really liked about Heroes of Olympus is that we got a glimpse of how everybody else sees Percy because for all mm-hmm. these books, Percy's like, I'm panicking, I'm freaking out. Ooh, what's that over there? Damn it, ADHD. And then everyone else is like, oh my God, Percy is Jackson. He's so handsome and cool. <laughs> the son of Poseidon. I heard he blew up a mountain one time and Percy in the inside is just like panic, 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 panic. So it's just, <laughs> it's like, that's my boy. Yeah, he is that cool. Good job, everybody. I'm very excited. I'm close to being able to read those Heroes of Olympus books books because as we record this, I am in the process of doing book five. Ah. So those episodes are about to come out, but we are here for the in-between books four and five, but technically books four and a half and five, whatever fraction you call the Demigod Files. Yeah, you know. that one I actually haven't read. So oh, this will be interesting. interesting. All I know is the myths. <laughs> yeah, well, I think the myths that we are going to talk about in the Demigod Files, which I think will be in the next episode, because there's so much in book four that I don't think we're even going to finish book four myths today because <laughs> it's so chunky. Oh, yeah. So I am excited to dive right into it. But before we do, now that you are a repeat guest, you will get our repeat guest question, Ooh. which I forgot to tell you ahead of time. So hopefully you have some sort of answer or you can figure it out on the spot. Oh, boy. <laughs> have you ever taken like a godly parent quiz? Do you have a godly parent? Oh. Or if you had to pick one, who do you think <laughs> if you got sorted into a cabin, which cabin you'd end up in? I remember having this uh, this like thought of course course because you know when you're when you're a little kid and you're reading these books you're like oh man that's so cool i wish mm-hmm. i was a demigod <laughs> even though percy book like page one is like no you don't stop you that. don't you really um, don't want this it's not fun <laughs> you do not but i ran into the immediate stumbling block that i like both of my real parents mm. so i was like i uh, well i mean uh, uh, it would be cool but also i don't know so <laughs> it was just this like awkward situation because it's like well power set wise you know all the big three are immediate winners mm-hmm. but like we're not trying to metagame here. It's like, which one would make the most sense for you? And at the time I was like, Psh, I'm the designated smart kid in my middle school class. I would totally be an Athena kid. But now it's like, I spend my life telling people funny stories on the internet. That's got Apollo written all over it, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, hey, you know, it's okay. If you take the Apollo lens as the any other representation of him outside of the Percy Jackson books, mm. you're probably good. Mm. Uh, <laughs> or by any other, I guess I'm just saying uh, my only real experience of Apollo is the Percy Jackson books, mainly because Apollo was not in Hades, the video game. Oh, so yes, I know sense. nothing about him at all. Looks like he's in the sequel, though. That's going to be cool. <gasps> oh, yeah, I figure, yeah. I'm very excited because I feel like for Hades 2, the video game, it's just going to be like, all right, which gods did we not get in the first game? Yeah. They're in the second game. <laughs> who, and... who have the fan artists been clamoring for? <laughs> <laughs> What have all these people doing mods? What have they been hacking in to make? Oh, yeah. So that'll be fun and I'll learn. Okay, yeah, you know, I can see. I can see. I feel like a mix of Athena and Apollo is good. You've got the smarts. You've got the goof. So (laughs) let's put those smarts and goofs into practice and talk about the myths. So I sent you a list of myths that either I had identified in the episodes when I was reading of, hey, 
I got to learn more about this. And the other portion of the list is made up of folks from our highest tier on Patreon, the Olympic Court. They basically put together a list of here's the things we really want to make sure that you cover in the myth episodes. So there is a rough order of whichever ones on Patreon got the most thumbs up are first. And then (laughs) after that, it's me where I was like, hey, what about Briari's? (laughs) So uh, let's go from the top, which had the most votes, which I'm very excited about. People wanted to know about the backstory of Dionysus and the relationship between him and Zeus, because I have only learned piecemeal over the course of doing episodes about this book and beyond. I didn't realize Dionysus didn't start as a god. I now know a little bit of it, so I'm really intrigued to learn more about his backstory and what his relationship with Zeus is like. Yeah, well, I mean, it's in this weird, complicated space, of course, because basically with Dionysus, there are two separate timelines. There is the mythological timeline of his life, and there's the actual historical timeline of his worship. Mm. Um, And I delved into this years back. I did a video that was just an attempt for me to deep dive into the history of Dionysus because for a while there was this theory in the historical branch of this research that Dionysus was like a late edition import god because Uh. he is not referenced at any point in the Iliad or the Odyssey Uh. and the Homeric sources are kind of the earliest thing we have to work from so Uh. so there was this prevailing theory that oh you know Dionysus must have showed up later come down out of the mountains with a bunch of cultists or something it's fine that happens all the time like they'd already figured out like Aphrodite was some kind of Phoenician import directly based off of Ishtar and Astarte and stuff like that. And then they were like, Apollo has got to be from somewhere else. He's got too many myths about being from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. and His name isn't Greek. So what the hell? Like that kind of thing. So it wasn't unheard of for Olympians to come from somewhere else. And then they cracked how to parse uh, Linear B and they were like, Hey, Dionysus' name is in these records from the 1600s BCE. My (laughs) gosh. He's not an import. He's actually older than most of the other gods. What do we do with this information? Um, And the current theory, or at least the theory that was present when I was researching this, is basically that Dionysus was a very old god, but the concept of there being an Olympic pantheon of the main gods, and those are the big boys, that seems to have been kind of an archaic era, like Homeric 700s, 800s thing. Before that, there were a lot of gods. But it might have been a little bit more like this is a local god, especially in Arcadia, which is the region where like Pan and Hermes seem to have originated from that sort of thing. It seems like there were a lot of very old, more animal themed gods of the wilderness and madness and stuff like that. Hmm. So it seems more like Dionysus existed and was probably pretty important in his circles, but he was kind of on the fringes. He seems to have had kind of a niche cult that was not exactly in the... um, Eh, pop cultural uh, zeitgeist of ancient Greece, as it were, until 500s, 400s, Rome started becoming more of a thing. Rome had their own versions of the gods that were sort of already very similar to the Olympians, but also different in key ways. But Rome also wanted to syncretize them all. So Rome had Bacchus, uh, which was a very Dionysus-like god of wine and stuff. And they liked him a lot. They loved that guy. He was great. Parties and wine and booze was fantastic. And so... Yeah, Bacchanalia, fun vibes. Exactly. So this Dionysus figure starts becoming significantly more popular. He starts becoming way more important. His his image changes. Initially, in the oldest versions that we can find, he's this like older bearded man, sometimes with horns. And then by the time Rome rolled into town, he was this young, drunk, pretty boy with just like (laughs) leopard skins and absolutely nothing else going on. So that's the that's the sort of historical timeline of his worship, as I recall. The video I made about this years back probably still holds up pretty well. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll link bit. to it in the episode description of this. All right. Fingers crossed it's still good. <laughs> Is that where the leopard print tracksuits comes from, I guess? Yeah, the reason why Dionys- or Mr. D in the books has that motif is because a visual motif of Dionysus in the arts is that he's usually draped in a leopard skin. He's got a lot of those uh, fairly iconic symbols. So the thing about the relationship between Dionysus and Zeus is that I think Rick Reardon sort of had a lot of room to play with this because there's a lot of juicy potential there because the story of Dionysus's birth is that his mother, Semele, was this mortal woman and she was having this affair with Zeus and she thought it was fantastic and Hera hated this as is her wont yeah. and she incarnates as she, she disguises herself as this old woman and she goes to Semele and Semele's like, can you believe it? I'm sleeping with the king of the gods himself. And Hera's like, oh, honey, you really believe that? You should ask him to prove it. So (laughs) Semele's like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. So she asks Zeus, she, I think she asks Zeus like to promise her like one favor. And he's like, yeah, I can do that. And she's like, show me your true divine form. And he's like, 
oh, I wish you hadn't said that. No, oh, no. <laughs> Shows her this is true to find form and she explodes because, you know, it's, mm-hmm. whoop, sorry, mm-hmm. can't comprehend the true meaning. But little baby Dionysus is still not exploded. So Zeus thinks fast and sews him into his leg, oh. which might be, a, yeah, this might be a euphemism. Uh, sometimes in folk tales and folklore, they'll say leg when what they mean is balls because it's just a little bit less so like the fisher king in like arthuriana the fisher king has a a wound that will not heal in his thigh and it's for some reason affecting the fertility of his entire kingdom which doesn't make a lot of sense if it's a wound in the leg but you know whatever Uh, okay 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 (laughs) yeah so so zeus sews dionysus up somewhere unmentionable so he can finish growing and then dionysus is born somehow and then just kind of does his own thing. He's a bit of a wild child. There were cults that had different parts of his story present in this one. So there were these Orphic cults in various parts of ancient Greece that are named thus because of Orpheus, who passes into the underworld and then comes back out. (laughs) So the Orphic cults were all about beings and gods and people that could go into the underworld and get information and then come back out. This is a motif that shows up in a lot of Greek mythology. Odysseus does that in the Odyssey. He travels into the underworld, talks to all his old war buddies, and then comes back out. And uh, the Sea of Monsters and a lot of other parts of the Percy Jackson series are very heavily derived from parts of the Odyssey. Right. So Orphic cults had a version of Dionysus called Orphic Dionysus, where he is actually killed as a child. Uh, He's ripped apart, and I believe the heart is what Zeus takes and implants in his body and essentially grows a new body around oh my that's so much more sci-fi than i was anticipating (laughs) it's whack uh so orphic dionysus was kind of he was a little bit of a like a evolutionary missing link between old beardy horned dionysus and young baby pretty boy dionysus because in this one he's like some of the versions it's like he's got some of the older vibes he's got some of the horns it's just oh it's a lot but the main timeline dionysus as it were basically just you know grows up kind of on his own doing his own thing traveling the world driven mad by Hera for a brief period of time. There's a lot of versions of like, and then he went here and taught them how to make wine. And then he went here and taught them how to make wine, like that sort of thing. Eventually, he just kind of joined the main 12 Olympians. And uh, when they're making the 12 Olympians, you know, especially when the Romans show up and they love their 12 Olympians, because like people lose track of this, but the Roman pantheon had so many gods, like a lot of small gods, too. They would have sets of gods that uh, didn't have individual names, but were like collectives, like gods uh, of thieves that all got God, subsumed God in expansion Hermes. packs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. God little trading card. <laughs> yeah, things, DLC you know, you, gods. <laughs> yeah, random draws. Gotcha gods. Um, so... Wow. Okay. Uh, (laughs) The coffee's kicking in. But they really, really liked the Greek system of like, there are different faces of these gods, but really it's mostly these big gods. And they loved that. So they syncretized their biggest gods with them. And they were like, there are 12 of them. And these are the 12 most important. And here are their names. Okay. Is there anything that Dionysus had to do to go from being, I guess, a demigod into being a full-fledged god? Is there some sort of like initiation ritual or is it just kind of like, he is accepted by the gods and thus he is elevated to god status. This is the kind of theme that shows up in Greek mythology. And again, there's no consistent world building, as it were. Uh, Dionysus is technically a demigod in that his mother, Semele, is immortal. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't always, like, matter. (laughs) Um, So the the thing is, of course, with with Percy Jackson as a series, it's it's a YA urban fantasy series. You want there to be rules. And in this case, it's like, yeah, you have gods and they're special beings and you have humans and mortals and they're different and if you put them together you get a demigod that's neither human nor god and that's pretty nifty and if you do that it's like okay yeah there's a difference between being a god and being a demigod and being a mortal there are hard lines not really present in greek mythology like there are gods and there are humans but there's also weird gray area stuff because ancient heroes sometimes got deified and sometimes this would become like a a myth in itself. So Heracles is the probably most important example. Romans worshipped Hercules as a god. Some generals would be like, oh yeah, you know, Zeus and Hercules are helping us out on this one. And there are myths of Hercules from later versions of his story where when he dies, quote unquote, he's poisoned and he goes on his funeral pyre and the fire burns away his mortal half and only his divine half ascends and he becomes a god. Interesting. Yeah. And this is an explanation for it. But practically speaking, it was like there was a great hero, Hercules, Heracles, whatever. And (laughs) uh, he was really strong and cool and badass. And hopefully he'll help us out on this mission. You know, that sort of thing. Sure. If there is a specific myth about Dionysus, 
proving his worth or ascending to godhood. I haven't found it. Okay. I'm not going to categorically say it doesn't exist, but if it does, it wasn't that important. Okay. Uh, his yeah. his cults already existed, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And you also get cases where like the divine parents of gods are sometimes like, well, she's probably a god. So like Artemis and Apollo are the twin children of Zeus and Leto, who is a goddess, but she's not really a goddess of anything. And she doesn't really do a whole lot. She gets worshipped in the context of her children. So it's like, is she a goddess in her own right? Is she just some person? <laughs> you know, oh, that sort of thing. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Little uh, little Mama Kardashian, you know, has she done anything <laughs> to be famous or is it just her children are famous? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is exactly correct. <laughs> so you are in this, it's this weird space because some of the demigod heroes are like, oh, this is, you know, this is Bellerophon, the son of Poseidon and, yeah. and the mortal. And, Theseus, and, big folks, yeah. Yeah, but it kind of almost seems like in a lot of cases, it's like, oh, this great hero, truly their parents must have been gods. It, like, that's the sort of okay. vibe. Okay. Like, there does seem to be some evidence that a version of the Trojan War really historically happened. And some of the big names have their names, like, documented in Linear B. And it's like, was there actually a historical Achilles or Agamemnon at some point or something like that? And if they were, they were people. They're just dudes. They're just dudes with real human parents. But when you mythologize that person, it's like Achilles' mother, Thetis, was fated to bear a son stronger than his father. And so Zeus, for once in his life, resisted the urge of the hookup because he didn't want to get immediately overthrown. You know, that sort of thing. Oh, Zeus, you did it. The one time you did it. <laughs> the one time. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> yeah, I've done it. <laughs> oh, boy. There's a lot here. But in general, it seems like the main arc of Dionysus' story is like, he was, you know, he was born. He was, you could even argue like he's more godly than some other demigods because he spent time like growing in Zeus's body. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. that, let's be real. They weren't doing that logistical world building when they came up with this myth. 3,000 plus years ago. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. I guess I do appreciate, and it's funny that it's a PGO thing, but I didn't notice it, but I like having particular rules, not necessarily that I need to like live by rules and stuff, but just when I'm reading YA novels and stuff, I enjoy when it's very clearly defined of like, this is the structure. And that's something that yeah. always bothered me with Harry Potter is like, what can, like they, <laughs> they always zoomed past laws of magic. And I was like, oh man, I would love to actually hear what those are. Whereas I do appreciate them. Percy Jackson, it's like more strict of yeah. these are gods, these are demigods, these are mortals, these are monsters. You fall into categories. Yeah. And yeah, for a kid series, that makes more sense as opposed to the flowy thousands of years of storytelling that make up folklore and mythology. Yeah. I would say that the Percy Jackson series has a pretty hard magic system compared to some, and it's pretty easy and, and formulaic to be like, all right, you've got this god, this god has these powers, these gods' kids can have some version of those powers. Mm -hmm. Like Percy can do water stuff and talk to fish. He's basically Aquaman. And yeah. Children of Zeus can do storm, lightning, cloud stuff. Yeah, okay, cool. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, it, it's a pretty easy way to break it down, but the problem is it's drawing on a mythology that does not have a magic system as we understand it because it was a living religion and those get weird. So, yep. Well, hey, Rick is doing his best. He is. So, another thing that folks wanted to know about that I think is understandable because I still am feeling the emotions from this chapter months later. What's up with Calypso and her island? Oh, yeah. So, this, like a lot of parts of the Percy Jackson series, are taken pretty much verbatim from the Odyssey and then reshuffled a little bit to fit. Cool. Uh, so Calypso and her island are a prominent plot point in the Odyssey because Odysseus washes up on the island and stays there for seven years. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he wants to leave and she won't let him. So Calypso does not get the best rap in this book and I feel like that's sort of addressed in PJO because it's sort of like she talks about how like she was sort of condemned because of, you know, her parentage and she's just really lonely and like, yeah, that all makes sense. But in the Odyssey, it's like, ah, oh, guileful, dread goddess Calypso. So scary oh, and spooky. Yeah, that was definitely not the vibe in book four. And book four yeah. was very much like, this isn't my fault. This is just kind of like my situation. She seemed very chill. I think everyone that I know who has read the series likes Calypso and feels bad for Calypso. So that's interesting that in the original myth, she's more of, 
evil bad person more along the lines well, of like a Cersei I guess you know yeah well evil bad is a little bit much but yeah. she is described as cunning and scary gotcha. uh, and she is you know she's a goddess basically Odysseus had the choice to stay with her and join her in immortality but instead he wants to leave he chooses to leave she just doesn't let him for a while uh, after seven years Calypso gives her permission to leave and Odysseus says outright that he's not sure if she changed her mind or if Zeus showed up and was like hey Stop kidnapping the dude <laughs> um, and like made her let him leave. So, yeah, she's an interesting figure, but she doesn't get a whole lot of focus outside of that. Just kind of she's one of the many weird things on islands that Odysseus has to deal with on his journey back. She just happens to be the one version that isn't a spooky monster that wants to eat him, just wants to, you know, marry him forever and stuff. OK. And then any of the other stuff that happens in PGO, like with the moon lace plant or any like are any of those other things yeah uh i think that was a that was a reared and original uh it might have been drawn on something but um yeah that's not really the vibe you get in the odyssey okay (laughs) odysseus is mostly like whoo dodged a bullet on that one (laughs) Um, and then is it also pga a thing for her to have a relationship with hephaestus because i believe hephaestus is who comes through in book four to kind of talk to percy i'm pretty sure that's a pjo original but I didn't make any notes about Calypso's parentage, so let me just check that real quick because (laughs) I don't think she's related to Hephaestus directly except in the sense that all the gods are related to each other. Sure. Yeah, uh, her parentage, as mentioned uh, in the book, Atlas is one of her described parents, but sometimes her father is Oceanus instead. Doesn't really seem like her relationship to Hephaestus is anywhere. Does seem like in some versions she might be one of Hermes' consorts, but that doesn't really narrow it down. (laughs) (laughs) It just kind of happens. But yeah, she's uh, most strongly discussed in uh, the Odyssey. She's not like evil exactly. Uh, She does like help him build his boat to leave and stuff like that. She's just, you know, kind of clingy and he just wants to go home to his wife. And it's it's just a bad situation. So I, I think that Reardon took that and brought it into a really interesting direction of like Calypso's curse is constantly falling for guys that have other priorities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. <laughs> and I guess in the Odyssey, she's just on like a normal island in the ocean. Like Ogigia is just kind of an island on the sea as opposed to in Percy Jackson where it's like in a different plane of existence. I mean, yeah, you can like read it either way. The uh, oceanic adventure of Odysseus does not really make sense geographically speaking if you try to map it to anywhere <laughs> real. But yeah, it's it's uh, kind of one of those standard, oh, it's a magical island somewhere else. There's a ton of those in folklore. You know, you sail across the sea, you'll run into something weird. Basically, all Reardon did was take that sort of soft magic concept and make it a hard magic concept of like, it's basically in another realm, Mm -hmm. which is why, you know, you can't just sail there. Uh, Okay. Okay. Yeah. I do think a map with the oceanic adventures of Odysseus would be a very fun (laughs) piece of art. I'm sure it exists somewhere, but just like a world map. I'm sure somebody's tried. It just doesn't. (laughs) You get people who are like, I think when he went to deal with the Lestragonian giants, he was probably in Norway. And it's like, how the f***? (laughs) <laughs> well, there was the joke in PJO that they were Canadians, so maybe it is some sort of, like, <laughs> northern, colder group. <laughs> you know, the running theme that we're going to encounter today is that people really want there to be hardline, consistently mm. true answers to these questions, and there aren't any because it's folklore. Yeah. But it's like, people will be like, yes, if we take this one line that implies that the sun is moving in a weird direction, we can clearly see that he's across the equator, and it's like, it's poetry that's been <laughs> translated from ancient Greek, <laughs> and you're trying to treat it like a mathematical equation get out of here with your logical statements we want everything to make perfect sense uh okay next one this is just a lot of people asked about this and i didn't send you anything other than one word pan uh (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes um yeah this is another one that i uh have a video that's sort of a deep dive about when i was looking into the history of the god hermes uh i found that hermes probably started off as an offshoot of the god pan which is pretty weird i think that video still holds up again every time i do one of these research projects the minute i put it out i'm like but what if i was wrong about everything somehow yeah props to you because even me i just talk on this show i don't really do research and stuff and the second i stop hitting record (laughs) the brain flushes it down the toilet and then you can only hope that you say things that make sense and then i'll hear the edit a couple weeks back after 
Sherry sends it because I'm quite ahead of where the podcast is. And it's like, oh, good, great. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everything I said mostly made sense. And also, I did think of that good pun that while I was editing, <laughs> I thought, oh, I hope you make this joke, Mike from the past. And then Mike from the past sometimes does. <laughs> That's always when I'm like listening back through any podcast, I'll be like, oh, I have a thought on that. And then me and the podcast will say the thought. And I'm like, oh, yeah, good. I was there. Same brain. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Who, what were the odds? So the thing with Pan that makes him frustrating to research is that he was clearly extremely important and there just isn't much in the way of records about him. Hmm. He kind of pops up intermittently in the more codified later myths. He's clearly just like a known figure. Um, you get stories about him like giving Artemis her hunting dogs and stuff like that. There are also versions where I believe he's uh, Hermes's kid, ah. which gets a little bit weird chronologically speaking. But like it's just complicated. Pan's main thing is that he's a mischievous woodland spirit and uh, he can cause panic and pandemonium with his pipes. So he can, you know, induce terror and, and madness. I think the vibe is just like the woods in Arcadia are really scary and they were like, oh, there's got to be something real spooky in there. And Pan kind of personified that. But again, we don't really have all that much information about him. He wasn't exactly a starring figure in a lot of the religious practices that happened in major cities. And we just didn't really get that much in the way of stories about him. He just kind of shows up in places. But there is some stuff about that whole the great god Pan is dead because you yes, you did give yes. me notes about the the satyr who said the great god Pan is dead. I, I looked up to that one. Yeah, Lysis of Ephesos? Yeah, so I think he's entirely made up. Uh, oh. I certainly couldn't find anything specifically about him. Um, so here's the thing. The great god Pan is dead was supposedly heard from the island of Paxi or Paxos, which is the in the Ionian Islands. Uh, Ephesos is over in Turkey, so those are different places. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Lysis, it, again, like, I, I can only do so much research. I didn't find yeah, anything about this. Good. It's possible that there was a satyr of that name, but Lysis could be a reference to Lyssa, who is a goddess of madness slash, like, rabies, and she kind of runs in the same circles huh. as Pan. I know, it's gross, but, like, hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, gods of madness in the wild, like, they all kind of hang out. <laughs> you get this weird thing in a lot of Greek myths where they'll be like, this god showed up and at his side were these other gods. And it's like, whoa, wait, those other gods, tell me about them. But it's just like, this is the embodiment of this concept. So it's like okay. Ares, uh, again, we're going to get ourselves, but like Ares rolls onto the battlefield and he brings Eris, the goddess of discord and Phobos and Deimos, the gods of fear and terror. But really what it is, is it's a battle. There's discord, fear and terror. Yeah. Yeah. Romans love doing this too. They would personify okay. everything. So but yeah, so the stuff with Pan, this is another case where I think Riordan had a lot of room to play because the information we have is very, very limited. So it's like, oh, there's Pan. All we know about him, for sure, is that at some point people thought, oh, the great god Pan is dead. And man, that's such a juicy concept to play around with. It's like, oh, there was the old wild god of nature and he's dead. Could this be our fault for littering? And like, I don't know, it's just, it's a very exciting concept to explore in, a, in an urban fantasy setting. This, this is kind of the gold mine for any writer trying to do this sort of thing. Like you want something with just enough detail that you're not pulling it out of your ass, but like not enough detail that you have to struggle to incorporate it into your story. You can just kind of play around. Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting, especially because when you first just think of a god dying, it's like, well, that doesn't make sense because they're supposed to be immortal. So yeah, that exactly. does make it a juicy concept to even put into the book. But yeah, I guess similar to Calypso, Pan in these books just seems very good and there's no sort of mysterious, tricksy nature of him. So for him yeah. in PJO just to kind of be the nature guy and he's old and sad because Rachel Elizabeth Dare's dad is destroying the planet single-handedly. <laughs> <laughs> he's Captain Pollution. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah, the guy who was in charge of mowing down the forest in Ferngully, <laughs> Rachel Elizabeth Dare's dad. <laughs> but I find it interesting that Pan is taken in this direction where he really just kind of is the embodiment of nature. Yeah. And then he has to just pass along because we're messing up so badly. But then Grover is now, you know, leading the charge. It's interesting because I feel like Pan is probably one of those gods. And based on what you're saying, it feels like this way, too, where there's just so much about him and so many different interpretations that there's kind of like a no there's a no wrong way to view him. Like there's so many different things that Rick can like really play in the space. There's a lot that's implied to have been common knowledge at the time. It's like, yeah, then Pan showed up and he did this thing just like Pan. Am I right? And it's like, what do you mean? Just like Pan. <laughs> Show me where it's written down. I think that uh, Reardon's interpretation of him is hmm, a little more whimsical and sanitized than he probably ever was in Greek mythology. Satyrs okay. and, well, the thing is, it's a YA series of urban fantasy stories for kids. Right. Uh, so they're not going to talk about how satyrs are constantly horny. And uh, almost all of their sculpture is prominently about the dick. 
Like, it's, you know, that's not going to come up in a funny, happy, fun story about how Grover's so wacky. And that's completely fine. Again, it's it's a it's an adaptation for a very specific demographic. And, yeah. you know, Greek, Greek mythology was full of a lot of truly horrifying and deeply unethical things done by a lot of the supposed main characters. And anyone who's adapting that kind of has to deal with that in various ways. And I I think this is a fun way to do it. Uh, and basically taking Pan and making him sort of the embodiment of like, uh humans are killing the planet, isn't that sad, uh, is certainly a way to do it. Uh, I think that as we've moved out of surviving off of nature and more into, like, civilization and cities and, you know, factory farming mm-hmm. and stuff like that, when we're not, you know, on the regs dealing with, like, going out to the woods and fighting wolves for stuff, uh, our image of nature gets a little bit more pastoral, a little bit more idealized, which is, I think, fine. I think that's not a problem. I think it's just a byproduct of how we live our lives now. But ancient Greece was not like that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> ancient Greece is like, ah, nature, that thing that screams at you so bad that you go insane. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, that's not exactly the happy, fun Santa Claus vibe I'm getting from... Uh... From Pan. No, that makes sense if that's how they viewed it in ancient Greece, because I was fortunate enough that I was living in Washington the last time there was the big total solar eclipse, and I drove over mm. to Idaho, and it was my first time seeing one. And when it happened, because it's just so weird and basically indescribable, I don't know if you've ever been in like a totality situation. No, I've, I was close once. I saw the sun rise with the moon moving out of alignment. Ah, it was weird. Yeah. It was hot pink. Yeah. When <laughs> when you actually get the full totality, I would recommend to anyone, if you have the chance, like it's a thousand percent worth it. Even I if you do like I did and just drive to the middle of nowhere, Idaho and just park on the side of the road. It's so weird that when it happened, I was like, oh, this is why people thought there were gods that were controlling <laughs> the sun and the moon and that the world might end. Like, it's just so strange. And I can't imagine just being someone from ancient Greece, just being like, la, 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 tilling the fields <laughs> for a minute. And then, okay, everything's normal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, there's this duality of a lot of gods that can be hard to reconcile. Again, if we're trying to find a single linear through line to make everything make sense, a related zone, Artemis, you know, goddess of the hunt. She goes out in the wilderness. She's the protector of young women. It's also her job to kill young women. She's also the person who constantly unleashes all those big, scary monsters on towns. Like, it's like, wait, is she good or is she bad? And like, you know, it's she's a lot of things. She embodies this extremely complicated space. Like, she's the goddess of hunters, but sometimes she kills hunters that hunt too much. So it's like, what's happening? And like, there are a lot of different reasons that that sort of story could be told. One of the easier explanations is that if you have a god that embodies a thing that happens in real life... That god needs to sort of encompass the entirety of the things of that that can happen in real life. You know, this goddess of the hunt, she's the goddess of hunters. Hunters sometimes die. So Artemis has to have a hand in that. So clearly they pissed her off somehow. Or, you know, or maybe they didn't. Maybe she actually liked them and another god got mad and killed them. But like, you know, uh, if we assign a simple, this god is a good person and does nice things for the people that follow them. It's like, well, what happens when bad things happen? How do we reconcile that? And sometimes it's like, Oh, the gods are capricious sometimes. I don't know. What do you think? We can't comprehend them. We're mortals. What do you care? And Pan is in this weird space where, to my knowledge, he doesn't have a group of people that are like his people, whereas a lot of the main gods do. Like Artemis protects hunters. You know, Hephaestus is the god of craftsmen. Artemis is the god of, you know, uh, Athena is like the goddess of like creative types and Apollo, god of inspiration. You know, a lot of the arts and storytellers and muses and stuff like that. And then you have Pan, who's the god of spooky, scary wilderness stuff and screaming so loudly you lose your mind. So, like, you know, he's probably going to show up in a slightly weird context in most of his stories, and he's unlikely to be dealt with by individual people very often. Yeah. So I think Reardon had a lot of space to play with him because there just wasn't that much. There was a lot of implied stuff, but nothing really locked in. Okay. No, that's fun. That's super fun. Yeah. Now, one that feels a little more locked in, and I'm just intrigued to know what, if there is one main or most common story about this person, people were curious about what the quote-unquote real story of Daedalus is, mainly what happened with him in Perdix. And then my question was, is Quintus any sort of thing in mythology, or is that <laughs> just like a Rick Riordan, let's make a number five in Latin joke? Quintus is a PJO original. Cool. Very cool. 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 I figured. Yeah. Basically, the notes I have about this are mostly about um, Percy's dream, obviously, because that's the that's the main. Right. So it's a slightly dramatized and fleshed out retelling of the, the Icarus myth. 
Obviously, it's very close to the version recounted by Ovid because Ovid is probably the primary source that Reardon mostly referenced because Ovid is very, very convenient for that sort of thing. There's obviously the minor change that in Percy Jackson, Daedalus survives as a series of automatons. <laughs> Nowhere in Ovid, obviously. Oh, okay, um, okay, yeah, I was wondering. <laughs> yeah, um, so there's a few different versions of the story. Uh, the Icarus myth, with da- uh, Daedalus and Icarus being imprisoned by the king, flying away to safety. Icarus ignoring Daedalus is like, hey, don't fly too high, don't fly too low. If people interpret that as like an analogy, like a metaphor, like you fly too high, ambition will burn yeah. you, but you fly too low and you're lazy and, you know, you don't get a job and you sink into the... Anyway, so he explodes and Daedalus is bummed about <laughs> it. didn't it. actually explode, so, right? I do I do like this fiction of everyone who dies in ancient Greece is via explosion. <laughs> just in my head, it's like that that bit in Spongebob where Squidward falls down and just like suddenly... Explode, yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly, yeah. That's just so Icarus falls out of the sky and, then just and explodes. Exactly, yeah. So the stuff before that, um, the stuff with Daedalus's nephew, Apollodorus is the source of that myth. Uh, the idea in the Apollodorus telling is that Daedalus is jealous of his nephew's cunning and skill, which is pretty much verbatim in the PJO retelling, which right. is pretty cool. The uh, main confusion there is that the name of the nephew is different. It sometimes varies. Usually the nephew's name is Talos and his mother's name is Perdix. In the book, in the PJO, obviously the nephew's name is Perdix. A little bit weird. Ovid's Metamorphosis, also the nephew's name is Talos, but the name thing gets weird again because when uh, Daedalus kills him, Athena turns him into a partridge which is what Perdix means. Um, right. So, so it's like his name is Talos, his mom's name is Perdix, but also he becomes a Perdix. And I think I might have said this in an old episode, but I wouldn't be surprised if the reason that they call him Perdix and not Talos is because Talos was also the name of the giant automaton in book three. So I wonder if it yeah, was Talos just like, a, well, we can't have two Taluses, or I guess they'd have to do like The Bachelor where it's like Talos A and Talos Q, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So also, as far as I can tell, in PJO, Daedalus kills his nephew after Icarus has already died because they mentioned that like Daedalus is quite old at that point. That's the order is reversed from how it's told in Ovid, I believe. Uh, So basically, in general, the reason why Daedalus is in exile is because he killed his nephew. So Daedalus kills Perdix, is exiled, and then he and Icarus are imprisoned. And then they fly away. Mm-hmm. I think that's correct. It can get a little bit confusing. Again, like the myths are sometimes told separate from each other. But the version that I found was basically like, yeah, killed the nephew. That's a no-no. He, he got booted. Then he and his son uh, did the wax wings thing and it didn't go well. And oh. uh, oftentimes the implication is that Icarus dies in part to punish Daedalus for killing his nephew. Like, oh, oh you you took away this this kid and, well, you know, enjoy this. It's a big mess. It's just, just a tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the way that Reardon stitched it together makes a lot of sense, making Daedalus into this quite interesting character who probably wouldn't have killed Perdix if Perdix was a little bit less of a sass master and Daedalus was not having that existential crisis about aging at the yeah, time. Yeah, maybe don't say, aren't you so bad at inventing stuff that your kid died? <laughs> like, I <laughs> always will say that uh, killing children is bad. How yes. <laughs> The Bert, hot take of Bert, today. Perdix, <laughs> you know, wasn't the nicest. <laughs> no, it's like it's like Perdix shouldn't have gotten murdered, but also Perdix shouldn't have been talking so much smack if he didn't <laughs> yeah. want to get murdered. <laughs> yeah, you know. Also, Perdix being the one who like invents the idea of the automaton, and then Daedalus being like, "Oh, nifty idea!" The yoink uh, was mm-hmm. kind of a fun way to to sort of make that come full circle, but um. This version is pretty much a slight remix of the version you find in Ovid's Metamorphoses, uh, classic Metamorphoses. Oh, Perdix, you know, he becomes a part, or Talus becomes a partridge, and that's a metamorphosis, so it fits the theme of the book. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot there, but most of the uh, most of the version in the book is very close to Ovid's telling, barring a little reshuffling and name changing. Okay, is there anything about Athena cursing Daedalus? Because I guess in PJO you have Icarus dying and then being imprisoned, not for any bad reason. Did they even say in book four why they're imprisoned? I don't remember. For which ones? Sorry. In the Percy Jackson stories, Daedalus and Icarus, when they're in prison, do they say why they are imprisoned? No, uh, I don't think the Percy Jackson books mention this. If I recall correctly, it is because Minos was like, 
nobody can know the secret of my labyrinth. Let's lock up its creator. I think that 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 might be more folk folklore, but that's the version that most people know. I'm also thinking maybe is it because Minos's daughter liked Daedalus or am I just conflating <laughs> that with what happened later? I've read these books so long ago. <laughs> I am <laughs> confused. Well, the thing is, again, like a lot of the different tellings are, will like add or remove character motivations for stuff. But uh, it seems to mostly be that Minos was like, oh, I've got this genius crafter who built this labyrinth to imprison the uh, cursed offspring of my wife boning that cow. So uh, nobody can know about this. Bye. <laughs> um, locks him up. So the thing with Athena cursing Daedalus, I don't remember if that's specific. I I'm looking into it. But uh, Athena is directly responsible for changing Perdix into a bird when mm, he dies okay. uh, to, to save him. So she's like there. But yeah, then I guess in book four in PJO, they make that more of a thing where it's like Icarus happening first isn't necessarily the result of him killing Perdix, but then the bad side rather than the downside of killing Perdix being now we're going to get back at you and Icarus will die. Instead, it's you've killed Perdix and now Athena is going to curse you for the end of time. Yeah, I did a quick check. I, I as always, started my research rabbit hole checking Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> hey, it works. And, uh, what it says is that in some accounts, Athena leaves Daedalus with a scar in the shape of a heart to remind him of what he did. However, there's a big citation needed at the end of that statement. Mm. So I think perhaps somebody read Percy Jackson <laughs> and was like, well, that can't have been just a just a thing that Reardon made up. Yeah, we'll just say some adaptations. Classic, yeah, classic. Hey. As some may say. It's a weird one. Uh, again, the order of operations can get a little bit weird. It's one of those cases where there are stories about Daedalus but they didn't necessarily go in a specific order. And one of them is his son dies, and the other one is he kills his nephew. In the version in Metamorphoses, Daedalus designs the labyrinth to imprison uh, the Minotaur, obviously. Cruel Minos, obviously, imprisons Daedalus after that because he just sucks. He's a jerk. <laughs> he doesn't even need a reason at this point. Minos is just kind of the bad guy in a ton of different myths. Yeah, uh, he kills his nephew. Athena is not happy, transforms Perdix into the uh, partridge so that he doesn't die when he falls. Uh, so Icarus dies and a partridge like sees it go down and is like, ha, serves you right. And then it tells them like, oh, yeah, because uh, because Daedalus did this naughty naughty. Yeah. In fact, the partridge that sees it happen is the transformed Perdix. Uh, so what, what a twist. <laughs> um Twelve years before Icarus dies, Perdix is uh, killed and transformed into a partridge because he figured out how to make like a saw. Well, obviously, in Percy Jackson, it was like, oh, he made a robot. But mm -hmm. in this one, it's like he figured out that if you carve teeth into a thing, it cuts better. <laughs> and Daedalus is like, this upstart genius. <laughs> I must destroy him. Ugh. Anyway, yeah, sucks to be Daedalus. <laughs> yep, indeed. On a similar <laughs> note, a lot of folks wanted to know what the actual origin of the labyrinth is outside of what it means in the context of Percy Jackson. So what does Greek mythology have to say about the labyrinth? I mean, so it's it's one of those things that's pretty basic in Greek mythology, but also maybe not. Uh, okay. <laughs> it, it's a little bit weird. So the thing is, obviously, Minos and the Minotaur are myths about the Minoans, uh, which were not the people writing the myths. Mm. The ancient Greeks were writing the myths. Mm. So the Minoans were a culture that had a lot of art of bulls and stuff like that. And it seems likely, I believe historically, they were also a little bit more inclined to piracy. So the ancient Greeks mostly dealt with them in a bad context. So you get these stories about how the Minoans are all evil and nightmarish ruled by a cruel king and way too obsessed with bulls like i hear they even bone bulls sometimes boy how weird is that and it's like okay so what i'm looking at is government propaganda mm. from like three thousand years ago is what's happening here Wild. because the minoans did have labyrinth motifs in some of their art <gasps> but labyrinths are not the same thing as mazes um, oh Okay. A labyrinth is not a maze. They're completely different things. A labyrinth is basically a very long, meandering shape, but it's a straight line, basically. It, oh. Like, you, you go to the middle and then come out the other end. It's a little bit of a weird thing. Like, you can see these labyrinth patterns, uh, and they're they're quite pretty, but if you look at it, it's like a dancing path, uh, I believe is how it's described at one point. Um, hmm. Ariadne, uh, sister to the Minotaur, technically, it's like... She, there are theories that she might have been some kind of minor goddess with a labyrinth motif and the idea that Ariadne, Ariadne like guides you through the labyrinth and uh, 
stuff like that. It's not about helping you find your way out of the maze so you don't get eaten by a monster. It's like, yeah, this labyrinth is Ariadne's dancing path, and like following it is like an act of worship. So this is this is very hard stuff to confirm because we have the versions of the story that were written down by Greeks and Romans and not the Minoans. So in that version, the labyrinth is a construction meant to trap the Minotaur. And every year they bring in a bunch of Athenian youths to feed to the Minotaur because Minos sucks. He sucks. Everyone agrees. Minos is the worst. Um, (laughs) So Theseus is one of them. One of those years goes in with a sword, kills the Minotaur with Ariadne's help. Ditches her immediately, mm. um, and uh, Ariadne gets to marry Dionysus instead, which is pretty nice. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> interesting to know the labyrinths and mazes are not the same. And uh, look, a dancing line sounds like a lot of fun to me. Yeah. <laughs> because then there's also the labyrinth with the Minotaur and Theseus and all of that. Is that also the King Minos labyrinth? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Minos the Minotaur. Um, so basically, uh, the gist there. Oh, I wish I could remember the exact details of this one. Uh, but for various reasons, Minos, uh, Minos, whatever, I think he manages to piss off the gods somehow, and they smite his wife with a horrifying lust for a bull. And I think she gets Daedalus's help to, like, build her a bull suit to, or, like, a cow suit okay. to go and, like, seduce the bull. All and he's like, right. hey, man, I, whatever. <laughs> I don't ask questions. I just work here. <laughs> yeah, uh, she has uh, the horrifying offspring that is, of course— half bull, half person, and uh, Minos is like, uh, hides him in the uh, labyrinth or has the labyrinth created specifically to make it very hard to figure out how to get out, drops the minotaur in there, and then uh, feeds it. This is another one that's in Ovid's Metamorphoses. Uh, There's like a whole suite of stories about Daedalus that are just retold there. It's a whole problem. (laughs) But yeah, so that's the minotaur. That's the, the name for Minos. And also the name for the Minoans, because that's what Minos... Minos seems to have kind of been a king that just represented those jerks over there. Yeah. So his, it's like Minoan just means of Minos. So the Minotaur gets trapped because it's so... Must bar- bury the secret shame and then feed it Athenians. Oh, who cares? Theseus <laughs> goes in with Ariadne's help and her clue, which is the ball of yarn that they used to get through, kills it, leaves Ariadne on an island. Theseus is the worst. He's awful. So so that's the origin of the labyrinth. The idea that it becomes this like massive, self-sustaining, magical thing is a PJO original and a very cool one. Yeah, it's super neat. And I guess if Minos did intentionally make the labyrinth hard to find, does that mean like he is the origin of making labyrinths more than just the dancing walking path like he's the one that made it more maze-like well it's an interesting theory i think part of the difficulty is that like it it seems like maybe the athenians saw the architecture of this meandering path and we're like oh that's so confusing how could you possibly find your way out they probably (laughs) hit a monster in there like that's the problem we're running into like they seem to have actually found a labyrinth like in like nosos in crete you know, you look at the classical designs and you're like, that's not, I mean, it's confusing, but it's a straight line. <laughs> it doesn't have dead ends. It doesn't have branches. Um, I, I'm going to show you something that, uh, unfortunately, folks at home will not be able to see, mm-hmm. but it is a coin from Nossos with a labyrinth on it. Oh, yeah. And if you look, you just it's go. a straight line. Yeah. You just go. Yeah. Okay. Apparently, there were early Cretan coins that sometimes had branching patterns, which makes it, you know, an actual maze. But the single path design without branching or dead ends is like how the labyrinth looks, even though it makes sense that the labyrinth that the Minotaur is trapped in has to have dead ends because otherwise it doesn't work. Um, So it's just a very odd space of like, who did this and why? Like, uh, whose idea was this? So the Bronze Age site at Nosos was excavated and they found a pretty complicated structure. And they were like, truly, this must be the labyrinth where the beast was imprisoned. And it's like, "Eh, maybe. (laughs) Or maybe we're experiencing the exact same culture clash that the ancient Greeks did. Who knows? (laughs) Um, But yeah, people really, really want there to have been a physical labyrinth. They keep looking in different tunnels and they're like, is this the labyrinth? Nah, probably not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Hello and welcome to the myth roll break. Sorry for not teeing it up. I was just so engrossed in the myth discussion that I forgot that we got to take a break halfway through. But here we are in that break. It is the New York Shubio edition of the myth roll break because I'm coming to you live from the new home studio that we are setting up for me in New York. I say we because Kelly has been dedicated towards making this little home studio as nice as possible. And I really appreciate her efforts there. We are starting to get more soundproofing things and stuff. Stuff like that, but I'm very excited to have a dedicated place to record these with my high quality microphone for some high quality sound. That's where this episode that you're listening to is recorded. And the mid roll break, let's get into that mid roll break. There is an announcement that I'm very excited to share with all of you. If you're listening to this the week it came out this coming Saturday, we are doing another Hades the video game stream. So that will be Saturday, June 10th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Stephen and I are going to do a stream, and this is going to be a special one because we are going to do some runs that are are trolly and hard on purpose. I'm going to do a run where Steven tries to pick the worst possible power-ups for me. We'll do the reverse, and then we'll do ones where the chat, anyone watching the stream, can try to dictate the boons and power-ups and all the sorts of things that you pick as you progress through the game, and basically just try to make me and Steven's lives as difficult as possible as we play Hades the video game, and you can all enjoy in that delight as long as you're a patron. If you go to thenewsolympian.com slash Patreon, you can join, and at any tier of the TNO Patreon, you will get access to this stream and you can watch it live Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern or you can watch the replay of it. The replay also includes all of the chat stuff so you'll get to see anything that the chat says, what decisions they make. So it's going to be super fun. It's going to be super goofy and it's this Saturday at 3 p.m. Speaking of upcoming events, we've got the three-pack of June shows, June 14th in Cleveland, June 16th in Detroit, and June 18th in Toronto for half TNO, half Potterless shows. You can get tickets to those at thenewsolympian.com slash live. And then later in the future, we've got a show in Hartford, Connecticut on July 15th, Chicago, Illinois on August 7th, Milwaukee, Wisconsin on August 8th, and Minneapolis slash St. Paul, Minnesota on August 10th. Tickets for all of these shows are live at thenewsolympian.com slash live, and I am still trying to see if we can get any of those shows live streamed. Now, Patreon is the place where you can watch that Hades the Video Game stream. And speaking of that, Patreon, I want to give a huge shout out to all of the folks who have joined our team. Most recently, we've got a wonderful team, got a whole bunch of folks supporting the show, which I think is fantastic and I really appreciate. I've been getting more bonus content up there, been doing director's commentaries, giving behind the scenes peeks at all of the live shows that we did. I've been putting up more bonus audio, bonus episodes. Lots of fun stuff is over at the Patreon. But let's give a shout out to the folks who have joined most recently. So shout out to our newest God tier patrons, Maddie Beidelman, Jesus Gonzalez and Katie Hawkins, and shout out to our newest demigod tier patrons, Ink Stain Cloud, Katie H, Asha Lay, Jason the Crow, KUU, Katie Edwards, JD, Emma Calhoun, and Riley H. Thank you all so much for your support. May Persephone bless you that you just really thrive in the spring and summer months. You just live your best life. Now, I'd like to tell you about a cool sponsor that we have for the newest Olympian, and that sponsor is Tab for a Cause. Now, Percy's out here saving the world, doing cool stuff. That's fantastic. Maybe you can't save the world, but if you want to help the world by doing something that you're already going to do, you can install Tab for a Cause on your browser. And whoa, what's this? Every time you open a tab, you help raise money for charity, and you can choose what charities get supported. If you go to tabforacause.org slash TNO, that's T-A-B-F-O-R-A-C-A-U-S-E dot org slash TNO, you you can install Tab for a Cause on your browser. Every time you open a new tab, you'll get a picture of a very pretty background, usually a nature scene, and then you might see some ads in the corner, but those ads raise money for charity. It's fantastic. I've been using it for years. It's really nice. The pictures are really pretty, and then you're raising money doing something that you're already going to do. It's the simplest way to support charity. It's really easy to install. Just go to tabforacause.org slash TNO today. Now, if you're all caught up with the News Olympian and you're looking for a new podcast to listen to, I make a whole bunch of podcasts, and I'm an independent podcast boy. I'm very proud of my podcast and I think you might enjoy them. One that I talk about every now and then is Potterless. It's a Harry Potter podcast that I made before starting TNO and I went through all the books for the very first time, much like I do The Newest Olympian. And we just put up an episode in the off week that we had. So that was from a live show that I did solo in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It was super fun. Did some comedic TED Talks about some of the theories that I thought were better than what actually took place in the books. So I got to explain why I'm the smartest boy but you can check that out and all the episodes of Potterless it's great material to listen to if you are trying to find something to listen to in the off weeks of TNO there's over 205 episodes of Potterless that you can listen to right now by searching for Potterless wherever you listen to your podcasts or by going to potterlesspodcast.com 
Now, before we wrap up here, you're going to hear words from a few sponsors who make it feasible for me to be a full-time podcaster. Some of those ads will be read by me. Others of them won't. The ones that are not read by me are inserted locally. So if you live in Norway, don't be surprised if you hear an ad in Norwegian. But once those ads are complete, we'll get back to this episode of the Newest Olympian. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. So we talked about Theseus briefly here. But in the book, Theseus explains to Nico that his stepfather threw himself into the sea because he yes. thought Theseus died in the labyrinth. And then Theseus tried to bring him back from the dead, but was unsuccessful. Is that pretty true to form in the Theseus myth? I believe the second part is not, but mm. the first part absolutely is. Okay. <laughs> when he left on his grand adventure, his father uh, made him promise to like signal that he was okay. It's like, okay, you're going to leave with a... It's like flags or something, right? It's the sail color, right. uh, the color of the sails he's sailing under. Um, so he tells his father, Aegeus, that if he succeeds in his labors, he will return under a white sail. He sails out under a black sail. He forgets. He fully forgets. Mm. He sails back with black sails. His father sees him on the horizon and is like, ah, truly my son has perished. I cannot take this. And he flings himself out of the ramparts and dies. And Theseus... Finds out when he lands because good work, kiddo. Ugh. So like, like I know he was busy. I know he had other stuff on his mind, but he's so stupid. Yeah, but also <laughs> Aegeus, like you gotta, you gotta get the confirmation, man. Come Count on. to ten, deep breaths, go to the boat, double check, be like, hello, just to yes. just to make sure he's not on yeah. the boat, right? Yeah, just gotta check. You just gotta check. Like, come on, you know Theseus. Uh, yeah, it's a whole thing. So. To my knowledge, he does not try to resurrect his father. That doesn't really tend to be a thing in most myths. But uh, again, that's a pretty reasonable thing for Reardon to just add in the like as a thing that didn't really make it into the myths, but could have potentially happened with this character. But yeah, Theseus accidentally having his dad killed because he's a ding dong is definitely a thing. Mm -hmm. Is there a reason why in PJO they say stepfather? Is that because his dad is uh, a his dad's Poseidon, right? Yeah, I think they go with stepfather because this is again a, a case where the lot of these heroes where it's like, oh, they must have been the child of the gods. Anyway, here's their entire genealogy. And it's like, explain to me how that works. <laughs> so usually it's like Zeus took the form of his biological dad, so it was fine. Theseus is sometimes described as the son of Aegeus, sometimes as the son of Poseidon. So again, it's a case where it's like, is he mortal or is he, is he, he you know, the Athenians, their fleet was like, world famous you know their main god was athena but also poseidon was hugely important to them and theseus is the founder king of Ath or at least like the he's athens is like favorite son and <laughs> token hero like he he's not exactly the one who founded it but he did a lot of cool stuff yeah. he was like their go-to golden boy and he's so stupid um but <laughs> he's just he's such a dingus like you look at half of his myths and it's like and that's the time that theseus let his idiot frat boat row friend try and talk him into kidnapping persephone to marry her <laughs> They're so stupid. Well, this makes me very happy that in Hades, the video game, he's a big old jerk because mm -hmm. in PJO, he seems like kind of nice. Like he hasn't really done much, but in PJO, the couple of times yeah. he's popped up, he's usually warning people not to do <laughs> bad stuff. Yeah. Reardon kind of sanded the corners off him. He sucks. I'm glad that I can continue to live in my world where my main exposure to Theseus is him being such a delectable jerk in Hades the video game. He's the, he's the most perfectly designed character. I will never understand when people on the subreddit are like, oh god, I hate Theseus so much, like he's my least favorite character. It's like, no, 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 you are supposed to hate him, so actually he's your favorite character and you just don't have media literacy. Yeah, you don't understand. It's working as intended. Yeah. Oh man, I don't like Thanos at all. He's so mean. He's such a jerk. Oh, oh my gosh, why is this villain bad? Theseus is so funny. Also, uh, I believe... It's another bit of like sort of folkloric. There's a, like written down versions of it, but it was clearly some kind of just like cultural joke. Theseus is briefly imprisoned in the underworld because his idiot frat bro friend Pirithus was like, let's kidnap Persephone. Let's like marry her uh, after they kidnapped 12 year old Helen of Troy for the same purpose. Because hmm. they're so stupid. Hmm. Um, 
Yeah, even that's before her major kidnapping. She she had practice. Yes, yeah, before um, she even becomes so hot that wars are started. <laughs> yeah, she's just twelve. It's fine. <laughs> so they go into the underworld, and Hades is like, "Oh yes, please sit down." And they sit down because they're stupid, and then they get fused to the chairs. Mm. And then later, when Heracles is down into the underworld uh, to get Ker- Kerberos, and he like finds them, and is like, "Yo, Nifty!" and uh, he like pulls Theseus out of the chair leaving most of his ass behind. Uh, and then he's like, I'll do the same thing with Pyrrhus. And H- Hades is like, no, you won't. And he's like, okay, see you around, see you around, sir. And Pyrrhus is stuck in the underworld. And the, the literal explanation is like, and that is why the offspring of Theseus cannot make it clap for their asses are too flat. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Ancient Greece is weird. <laughs> ancient Greece is weird indeed. What a wonderful note to end our first of two myth episodes on. <laughs> the, uh, the underlying <laughs> thesis statement, ancient Greece is weird. More like a Theseus statement. Perfect note. Wow, fantastic red. If people want to find you doing stuff on the internet in between this episode and the next time that they will hear your voice as we continue to discuss the rest of book four myths and then also the demigod files myths, where can they find you? Yeah, uh, for the most part, I am on YouTube at Overly Sarcastic Productions. We brought up a couple of the videos I made in this video, so you could probably check those out in the interim and uh, tell me if they're bad, because I don't know. (laughs) So fingers crossed. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's the bulk of it. I'm also on Twitter sometimes, but like, don't do that. Save yourself. (laughs) Yeah, Get off. Get off. There's nothing good. Save yourself. Uh, I wish I could not have to rely on it for work. But anyway, Red, thank you so much for joining. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, when we learn about more myths that were in book four and beyond, until then, I'll proceed you later. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The News Olympian. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Mike Schuber. I also run the social media and the website. Our editor is Sherry Guo. The music is by Bettina Campomanes and Brandon Grugel, and the art is by Jessica E. Boyd. If you love the show, you're all caught up on the show, and you just can't get enough, you should check out our Patreon, where you can get access to loads of bonus content, bonus episodes, bloopers, director's commentary, monthly Q&A live streams, all sorts of good stuff lives at thenewsolympian.com slash Patreon. And if you want to rep the show, you can get some merch at thenewsolympian.com slash merch. If you want to be part of a larger community, you can join the Patreon, get access to our Discord, but you can also check us out on social media. We're at News Olympian on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We have a subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash the News Olympian. We even have a TikTok account that Sherry runs. It's at News Olympian. Lots of good stuff on social media. This show wouldn't be possible without our patrons, and I want to give a shout out to our ultra god tier patrons, Lada Bartova, Kelsey Gillespie, The Damn Steam Nuggets, Vicky Garcia, Ellie Haskovchova, Veronica Bartova, Haley Hastings, Robin Garcia, Frida Vickstrom, Megan Moon, Olivia Y, Craig McRoberts, Taylor Payne, Giselle Salvador, Peter Johnson, The Twins, Sabrina Balsiger, Bony Pony, Heather McMillan, Casey Williams, Polly Burge, Nikki Harris, Tatiana Schmidt, Sandra Rose, Bridget Lowry, Josh Sayer, Josh Wilkie, Abby Ryan, Wise Girl, Ashton Gabrielson, Marco Redhouse, Falcon, Joey, James, Christopher, William Boucher, Caden Max, Sam Sam Ruby, Carly Allen, Riley Kitas, Mary Kelly, Audra, McKenzie, Mrs. O'Leary, Aaron Wood, Rodith Kalna, Milo Kim, Fred Cabras, Harlan Christ, Cece Reads 23, Sankoff, Julia Kendall, Emil Oscar Thomason, Liz Cardigan, Michelle Spurgeon, Zachary Hamilton, Sarah Neal, Ricky, Francesca Pacheco, John Drillsma, Demigod Nurse, Rayla Matthews, Riley Dragon, Luna Kadoon, Sky Mallory, Elizabeth Obermiller, Aiden Parziani, Biggest Tyson Fan, Hunter Landstrom, Captain Jack Rackham, and Sky Captain and the Princess. If you want to help out the show in a non-monetary way, tell a friend about the show. That really helps a ton. Reach out to someone directly and say, hey, you love Percy Jackson, or hey, you've been looking for an excuse to read Percy Jackson. There's this podcast. It's very good. The host is very humble. You could also talk about us on social media or leave us a rating and review on whatever podcast app you're using. All these things help, and I really appreciate all of you who have done that or will do it in the future. But I'm just so thankful that you tuned into this episode, and I hope you tune into our next episode where we'll be joined once again by Red to cover the myths in the rest of book four, as well as in the demigod files. But until then, I'll see you later. Hey, how's it going? It's me, ASMR Mike. So in the mid-roll break, I mentioned that we are coming to you from the new Shubio, and it is a closet that I am converting into a soundproof booth. And there's some stuff around me that, much like I did when I was in my sister's closet, let's just, uh, let's make some noise. Here is a laundry hamper filled with stuffed animals. Um, I don't know that that's going to make too much noise, but I can crinkle the laundry hamper. The key with the stuffed animals is that they serve as great sound dampeners, and then they're also cute. I also have a bunch of Percy Jackson books in here, so I can flip through some pages. You also may have heard some jingling from the next item, but here's some Percy Jackson books page flipping. Oh, there's a book falling over. And now uh, let me just jingle the zippers on the case of my uh, microphone.
that is uh, what we've got for you right now. I hope you enjoy and thank you so much for listening.